Madcap Flare offers cutting-edge technical authoring and publishing capabilities for today's technical writers and content developers with advanced features to maximize authoring efficiency, content reuse, and multi-channel publishing. By combining Madcap Central's cloud-based collaboration, publishing, and content management functionality, authors can improve content quality, gain greater insight into tasks and production schedules, work collaboratively with teams, host content, and automate processes. Madcap Flare and Madcap Central, combining the power of desktop authoring with cloud-based collaboration, publishing, and content management. Learn more at www.madcapsoftware.com. This is the Cherryleaf Podcast. Normally, the way I start this is asking people to introduce themselves, what they do, and I suppose it's relevant to you where where they are. Sure. I'm Kirsty Taylor. I'm a manager of product internationalization for a company called RPM Global. We produce mining software. So all kinds of mining. There's quite a variety in the world of mining from open cut and underground and all different commodities are mined. And I just joined RPM in August of this year. So been there just over two months and I'm coming to grips with uh, what we do and, and learning a lot in that space. And do you have a team of people that report to you or you work with? How does that work? I'm part of the research and development or technology business unit. We're not, we're, we've got a fairly flat hierarchy. So I don't have a team reporting to me. I'm working across all of the different development teams. We've got, I think about five or six different product domains. So I'm working with each of those product domains. We've got one UX person. I've been working with him and a couple of technical writers. They, I sit quite close to them and I'm starting to work with them on their, their content as well. So that's how, how we kind of structured at the moment. Then we have other divisions that I'm interacting with. I'm working with the marketing team. I've started talking to some of our consulting team. We do two different kinds of consulting, which is a bit new to me. Mm-hmm. We do consulting on our software products but we also do what we call advisory consulting which is actually more general business consulting in the mining industry and it's completely separate to our software sales. And you're based in or near Brisbane or in Brisbane? I'm based in Brisbane, Australia so right in the centre of the city. I lived in Brisbane for almost my whole life apart from a few years when I was running around in the outback as a small child and yeah based right in the in the heart of Brisbane now and I've been working in Brisbane in technical communication and internationalization for almost 20 years now and you're fluent in German and English yes so I'd, I'd say fairly fairly fluent in German and English I don't get to use my German as much as I'd like unfortunately and then I, I, I studied little bits of Italian and Japanese at primary school and high school uh, and I've throughout my career in internationalization I've learned all kinds of handy words such as tab and work order and click <laughs> in Russian and Spanish and a few other languages that, well, I, I'm not sure if I can pronounce some of them properly, but I can recognise them when they're written. You were saying you presented at the, AS, the Australian STC conference on the Gold Coast recently. Your topic was keep it simple. 
How long was your presentation and what prompted you to talk about that So that my, subject? It was a 45-minute presentation. If you have looked at the slides on SlideShare or something, mm -hmm. that is actually probably the full slides for an hour to an hour and a half presentation. So I didn't go through all of the slides in that presentation. There was, there was too much content yeah. for it, but I wanted to put some of the extra content in there for attendees to have access to afterwards. I guess I've found over the last 10 plus years that the areas I work in and the areas that I can talk about it at conferences include management, management of technical writing teams, management of global technical writing teams, internationalization, both software internationalization and writing for a global audience so that you've got good English content that can be more easily translated than if it were lower quality content and then be translated successfully into other languages. A lot of people don't realise they expect translators who have never seen your software. Maybe they do know about mining being our business domain, but they may not have used software like ours. Uh, they may know it from university studies more than working in a mine. Being presented with XML extracts out of a, a document authoring tool that is maybe single sourced and compiled into a huge number of topics. People who are working on that content in those products all the time don't realise this is probably analogous to a technical communicator being asked to doc document a software system based purely on specifications or user stories or design documents and never getting to see the software and run it and understand the business processes behind it. So often when you translate, you can get a drop in quality just by the nature of the process. It, that can occur depending on how involved your translators are and what your process is. So if you if your your content is not of the best possible quality you can produce, you're, you're doing a disservice to your future translations and translators can't just make up for that uh, quality gap. So your presentation was on tips for keeping your writing style simple and straightforward to make it easy to, for it to be translated. That's probably simple. where the crux of this expertise has come from, but I believe these sorts of tips can stand just as well if you're not translating or if you don't know you'll be translating and then down the track three or four years you do end up translating. There were some other presentations from technical communicators and managers from Boeing. Uh, Boeing Defence is quite one of the larger employers of technical communicators here in Brisbane and they're producing various forms of aircraft, though they had a special word. Was it air vehicles or there was something like that that they used, helicopters and, and the like that they're producing for the Australian Defence Force. And that, that their content is never going to be translated, but they were talking through using simplified technical English. And a lot of the, the tips from my presentation cross over to simplified technical English where, you know, don't, don't omit articles from your content. Don't turn it into that robotic speech. Yes, it cuts down on words and you pay by the words for translation, but you're actually doing a disservice by trying to cut down the words in that way. So... Whilst it was for translation, it's still, I think, some very good basics for some good, simple writing. In terms of advice for people mm -hmm. to write uh, simply and clearly, what were the main items of advice that you passed on? 
Um, a lot of it, and, and I went through some of these um, slides with the technical writers at work last week, and as we we're going through some of them, one of them pointed out, oh, you know, this is really basic technical communication information, and it is, but sometimes we need to be reminded of those basics when the subject matter, particularly verbose academic style subject matter experts, bog us down with original content that we might have to rewrite or, or are using as source material and to use that for our content. So it, it is, it's all basic stuff, you know, using active voice. If you do use passive voice, make sure it's deliberate you know, there are times where passive voice is okay. It's not the root of all evil. If you really want to take the actor out of the particular sentence or, or the idea, then passive voice is okay. Uh, using present tense, watching out for your modal verbs. They can be really problematic. Will, should, may, etc. We should be, should be <laughs> speaking. And then as I found during the presentation, what, what you speak sometimes might be different and, and a bit more verbose than how you might write. So if, if something should be done, you know, is that must or, a, you know, is there some kind of yes, no, you don't have to or you do have to make make sure that's really clear with your writing having short sentences trying to use positive constructions um, and there's certainly that trend in ux writing as well with error messages and messages to users in your user interface to not focus on oh bad user you made an error warning warning will yeah. robinson but make it into you know oh make sure you Put the right format for your postcode or or whatever here we we're looking for a hyphen or something make sure you don't have adjectives sitting there without nouns adjectives modifying the nouns that is there, there can be a tendency in english we can accept kind of these unstated now unstated nouns but other languages you can't transitive verbs make sure they're transitive keep your language consistent have simple sentences, watch out for your parenthetical plurals. They're really problematic in other languages. So other languages can't just add an S or an ES onto the end of a word or, or the equivalent of that to form a plural. So maybe just write everything in plural form or try to rewrite to avoid the singular or plural optionality. Maybe it isn't the most critical thing that that sentence's number agreement has to agree with the number of records the software is returning in that uh, function or something. Deletion of records is, I think you mentioned it's one of those phrases to avoid. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and you know, all these words that we don't realise when we're speaking that can be problematic as well uh, when it's written down and we're taking the word just, just as a standalone word is record. Is it record or record? So is it a noun or a verb? Is there enough information there for a translator or someone who has English as a second language or as a foreign language? to understand what that is without then having to spend much, much longer parsing and trying to understand the meaning of what you're trying to convey. So I'd say those, those were some of the, the big tips on grammar and style. Yeah, I, mean, I thought there was some good advice on the, the slide deck that I saw. A lot of it overlaps with uh, some of the, the basic grammar and writing principles that we cover in our technical writing foundation course. Mm -hmm. 
it was good to see. I did notice something in your uh, presentation. Let me just get to the the right section. It was about gerunds mm-hmm. and the present participle mm-hmm. and how you write headings. Mm-hmm. So there's a trend with companies, particularly with doc- developer documentation, where in the past we might have written searching the database and now uh, companies are using search the database or search database. And you talked about some of the implications or pros and cons of, of using those and the and how that impacts on translation when it gets uh, translated into other languages like French and Spanish. So can you tell me a bit more about the problems with that and, and ways around it? Mm, there's a couple of problems just distinguishing between the gerund and the present participle, you know, across languages and, and making sure that distinction's clear that there can be, you know, certain of these grammatical terms that we aren't aware of those distinctions potentially as native speakers unless you have undertaken some linguistic studies or studied other languages and realised how that maps back to English because I know I certainly never talked about present participles ever at uh, school until I hit university doing a linguistics degree and doing my business German degree. That was when I really got into these sorts of nitty-gritty grammatical terms. But the, the real problem is where other languages, and with the examples I gave with French and Spanish particularly, they can't distinguish between search database and database searching or searching the database. They would be translated exactly the same. So what we th- we may perceive as a nice distinction between the gerund, the ing form, and then now we get down to what a nice imperative mood search the database potential heading. That distinction just may not transfer across. So what I ultimately wanted people to take away from that is maybe not to worry so much about the gerund and present participle, but to make sure when you've got a heading structure that there's really meaningful differences with your headings rather than, okay, well, my heading one or my heading two or whatever, you know, that's database searching and now I'm going to go down to the next level and now I've got actually the step-by-step going on. I'm going to say search the database. Uh, If you're going to be really just moving your words around, slightly having a different verb form, moving the words around in your phrase that is not meaningful enough try to do something more with your language to make it distinct and meaningful at those different heading levels to help your users of all or your readers your audience they're not users they're your readers to understand these semantic differences that we think are so meaningful sometimes as we're writing our content but uh, that meaning maybe falls away a bit as uh, the content is being read. You mentioned pronoun references. Mm. This is a one that often comes up when you talk about it or that or this. Is it clear what it is? Yes, what it's, um, what it's referent or antecedent is. And I had some examples there from some documentation and I've seen, across, seen this across different documentation. Again, we're very flexible in English, but other languages aren't so flexible or you need to have uh, gender agreement. And if the pronoun is too far away from the noun, that makes it tricky for the translator to decide which 
pronoun they need to use. Are they, you know, if it's a gendered language, is it masculine, feminine, neuter? Is it plural? How do they form that pronoun? And when there's three nouns before you get the first pronoun, the first it, you know, what is it? It's not it's almost an existential question. What is it? <laughs> Which of these nouns is it? If you're a writer writing in a way where your content is going to be translated into another language and you, you speak one, only English, you, you don't have a second language, is the best way to, to minimise the problems for translators just to write short sentences or are there other things that they can do? I think short sentences would be a really great start. When you're writing short sentences, you're keeping things also you're keeping the sentence easy to parse, easy to understand for people at different literacy levels and, and language levels. Again, you know, you some people will be reading your English who don't have English as a native language, so this will help them as well. So short sentences and probably the way I think of it is trying to break a lot of the rules you learnt in what we call primary school in when you're around, say, 8 to 11 years old, assuming everyone's school systems is roughly equivalent, which uh, they may not be. But I can remember being challenged to expand my vocabulary and use different words and those sorts of things. Whereas back in technical communication, we should be having one word means one thing. If you want to talk about changing data in your software system, then always talk about change, changing data. Don't say change here, modify there, alter over there. Don't. <laughs> Don't expand your vocabulary. Shrink it back down so that you're very consistent, very repetitive. If you find that frustrating or you need to get out creativity in some other way, then maybe you're one of those technical communicators who could get much enjoyment from writing fiction or other things on the side at night or early in the mornings and let your creativity loose in that way. Uh, it's not, I don't believe that technical communication is at all without creativity. I think it's a, a different kind of creativity to say what I imagine fiction writing would be if I were to ever be able to write fiction. It's a different application of creativity and how we're solving problems and communicating. Uh, so yeah. yeah, short sentences, great, great start. And then the next thing would be, my next big thing would be consistent terminology. So you also mentioned two other things I picked up on in the presentation was positioning of icons in mm -hmm. sentences mm -hmm. and the use of flags. So you were saying that with the positioning of icons, don't have them in a sentence, but have them at the end, if I remember correctly? Yes. So th those were some that um, I, I didn't really get to go through in depth with the audience. Where you can have problems with icons or images in the middle of a sentence is with sometimes with your translation tools and being able to mm -hmm. move those image references around because you, you might need to, obviously word order can be quite different in other languages. English does have, a, well, when it comes to adjectives and how we would structure adjectives, we are quite regular. 
with that standard grammatical English, but other aspects of our sentence order is quite different. Whereas, you know, I know you know German, Ellis. So if we talked about German standard sentence, subject, verb, time, object, manner, place. So you need to, if the subject wasn't at the start of the sentence, from an English sentence translated into German, you need to move it around in German. And that's that's just part of translation. But if you had click and then an image of an icon, you might need to move that around for the translated sentence. So you want to make sure that image reference doesn't break. You may also need to retake that screenshot when you've got an OK. Well, OK is not quite universal, but OK is fairly universal in many languages and you'd be surprised which ones do use it. But if we're translating into Russian, it would be something different than the letters O and K in English. It's around more the translation tools, how they recognise that sentence reuse. And it, it might be better to consider a pop-up on hover or or something else. Or if, it, if we're just talking about clicking a button, does it really need to be embedded in a sentence or can you can you just say click button name or select depending on how device neutral you're you're trying to be related to screenshots do you include screenshots in your documentation or do you try and avoid those as much as possible because that's an area where um, again localization and, and language different variations across languages comes into play. yes in my current role you know i'm still too new and I'm, I'm learning what's being done and what's the most appropriate for this software. In my previous role, there was one particular piece of software that was quite a complex ERP system with something like 2,000 different screens or forms or transactions. They were also highly uh, localizable not just translatable, but also localizable. So depending on your configurations, you know, address details would show up with uh, postcode in Australia, but zip code in America. Uh, you could change your tax settings for the financial functions so that, again, GST in Australia, VAT in the UK, sales tax in the US and so on. So a number of, and, and then customers could actually make customizations according to their business processes. So a number of screens would rarely be used in exactly the way we documented them, both in, from a writing perspective or if we put in a screenshot. So we kept out most of the screenshots and we also went with the premise of our audience would be reading this documentation as they're using it. They're, they've got a problem. They want to find a solution to their problem. They're stuck at this step. This is when they're accessing content. It's not with the notion of, of a 200-page, 500-page user manual that they're tucked up in bed at night reading through to thoroughly understand before they go to work tomorrow. They're going to kind of... There might be training and, and so on happening, but uh, really going to be accessing the technical communication content we produced at the moment of need and with the software in front of them. So that was the tack we took. There are different tacks taken by other writers, technical communication groups. There might be times where you could have screenshots and you either keep them in English because it's close enough and it gives you a sense of what's going on or you do go to the effort of localising them and taking all those screenshots in language and then hopefully if you're going to do that, you've got an automated process for taking the screenshots and getting them included in your documentation or levels of automated process to help that out. It's a tricky area. I've, I've 
been working, you know, previously where we very much tried to avoid it, a lot of screenshots due to that maintenance overhead, as well as thinking, well, you're looking at the software. We don't want to be showing you so many visuals when we think you're looking at the software at the same time. There might be times where judicious and deliberate use of screenshots are a good choice to make and a good choice to have effort in localizing or saying these ones really need to be localized, but these ones we think we might be able to go okay because we're not doing a really translating into a really different language like a right to left language such as Hebrew. You highlighted some issues around using flags in documentation. So there's a few issues. So some of this stems back to, again, years ago when I first worked with some really great localization professionals, there was some content that I was working on and the team was working on at the time. And we had various localizations. These were mostly statutory tax-based financial localizations. So it was around statutory financial reporting to meet government requirements or payroll. Payroll is a huge localization. You wouldn't think about it. People seem to be managed to be paid in almost every country in the world, but every country and sometimes, you know, down to state or sub sub-local areas have different rules around payroll and taxation. So we had little flags saying, you know, this topic, this topic's for South Africa, this topic is for Australia, this topic's for the UK, and so on. And then we ended up moving away from that flag notion and, and putting in text. The, there's a few different problems with flags. If we want to talk about English as a language and have a flag represent a language, what flag do we use for English? A lot of websites you might see will, will end up using the US flag or the UK flag, and that might be representative of their base locale. But as someone who belongs to a nation that doesn't bear either of those flags, I'm always left a bit like, well, you forgot me. I understand you don't want to put 20 different flags for all the different English varieties, plus probably even more than 20. So it can be problematic if you're using a flag to represent a language because a flag is not a language. And then there are issues where various countries and regions are not recognised by other regions. If you listed Taiwan as a country, the People's Republic of China would not look on that very kindly. They do not regard Taiwan as a country. It is part of the PRC. Were to use a flag to represent the Korean language, do you choose the North Korean flag or the South Korean flag? So these are some of the problems around flags. But you will notice, and I mentioned that, and I've had, had to have these discussions with developers as I try to argue for a stance of don't use a flag to select a language. Some websites, some big international websites do use flags along with a country on their websites, but that's the key part. It's along with a country name. It's not a flag as a language. And then once you get into that website, like something like the Apple website, it's a localised experience. Once I get in past that Australian flag, all of the I'm, – I'm seeing prices for products in Australian dollars, not US dollars, not pounds – not Malaysian ringgit, not anything else. If I buy something on that website, it's ready to ship to Australia and it's got the, the address format in the, the way that I expect as an Australian. 
I'm not being asked to, you know, enter a state and I'm being given a selection drop-down list of the US states. So it's a fully localised experience for Australia. So then it's appropriate to have your Australian flag or your British flag if if you're providing that fully localised experience. People can find copies of your presentation under your name on slideshare.net, isn't it? And you're Kirsty M. Taylor. I'll put a, a link in the in the show notes for this presentation. Yes, that's correct. Um, I think that's all the questions for the moment. Is there anything else that we need to point people towards? I think just the slides, isn't it? I think that's yeah, the just thing. the slides. And I've got some good references at the back of the slides as well. I've worked with a few, tech, you know, a, a wide range of tech writers over the last 20 years, some of whom have had strong linguistic backgrounds like I have and are happy to talk about gerunds and present participles and imperative mood and subjunctive and all these sorts of hugely grammatical terms and some who have been really good writers but um, maybe operate a bit more from a gut instinct and understanding of grammatical structures without knowing all the names. So I popped a couple of references at the back to there's a MOOC, there's a couple of books, there's some other presentations online that might go into areas that discuss a bit more of that grammatical um, terminology if you're not familiar with it and want to read up on it. And the other way, of course, is just to get people to test somebody to read your content and try it out, and that can highlight things that aren't aren't clear. Absolutely, Um, absolutely. So thanks for the talk, Kirsty. Thanks a lot, Alice. It's, uh, It's been really fun chatting with you.